happy to be here today with my loyal sidekick. You guys are being spared this. Today is Halloween, and I understand that Odie went as a banana to the local lunch today. And so we were debating whether he should come as a banana. And, I, and Austin Armstrong, who is our co-producer, offered me to be a taco. <laughs> so just imagine taco and banana here. We're happy to be with you. Happy Halloween to you. And uh, uh, by way of introduction, real quickly, uh, my background's in psychology, and we'll be looking, taking a psychological perspective on looking at addiction and recovery today, uh, as we do generally in our series. I want to highly recommend that you check out our previous videos, which can be accessed uh, in the archives at Beginnings Treatment Centers under podcasts. You can also go to YouTube, look up Ask Addiction Specialist. And if you came to us today through Facebook, you'll find uh, an archive of of our videos there on Facebook as well. I'm going to mention something else about an entry on Facebook this week that I want to um, uh, direct you towards. So part of my work is as a professor of clinical psychology at a local university, California Southern University. I've been working this morning on several doctoral dissertations. That's primarily my role there is to supervise doctoral research. And uh, 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 so many of the dissertations I chair are directly pertinent <coughs> to our conversations, including this morning's. There were two I were looking at that were looking at the effect of stress, early developmental stress, on later addictive behaviors. And we're actually going to be tying that in later today. So that's part of the work I do as, as, uh, is in academics. Uh, and then the other part that uh, keeps me busy is working as a recovery coach, which means I work with individuals who are seeking uh, uh, recovery from addiction, including uh, right before I came here today, I led my Wednesday men's group. I loved our group today. It was vital and alive and engaging. And so I work with these men at Beginnings Treatment Centers, and I mentioned Beginnings because they sponsor our weekly podcast. I want to uh, extend appreciation to them. Um, in fact, I, I uh, made it, I cut it close today. I met with the uh, clinical director at Beginnings today, Dr. Asan Garajadagi, who's a long-term colleague and dear friend of mine, to talk about um, kind of the, the state of, of uh, the state of the nation, I guess you'd say, in terms of addressing the opioid epidemic. We had a very rich conversation, in some ways troubling. There's a much greater need right now for services than there is a supply of, of resources to provide those services. So a lot of people are dying, and you read about this every day in the news, are dying owing to opioid addiction. And there just isn't enough treatment and not enough support for the treatment. So a lot of people who cannot afford treatment are not being supported through state and federal funding and, and also through insurance. And it's deeply troubling to me. So um, uh, there's, as I said to Asan, Dr. Uh, Dr. G, as we call him, as I was leaving today, I said, uh, Asan, there's a lot of room at the top in, in uh, what's going on right now. And we agreed with that. So, so a shout out to Beginnings Treatment Centers. Uh, I'm very happy for you to be joining us today. Uh, as part of kind of the education. I think one of the things that came from the conversation with Dr. G today is that there needs to be continuing education to not only individuals who are seeking recovery and their loved ones, but also to the, uh, the systems that are in power in terms of dispensing services. So whether that's insurance companies or um, governmental agencies, et cetera, there's a tremendous amount of ignorance around addiction um, that really uh, impacts people's lives. Uh, people die because of uh, ignorance around addiction. And so I'm really happy to be here with you, Odie, mm. to hopefully um, 
provides some shine some light into the darkness of ignorance around this and so i uh, want to thank you all for joining us today um, if you were here last week just as a quick note we we looked at the topic was growing up actually growing back up in recovery the idea that many people um, once they go into addiction lose capacities to make good moral judgments as just one example and that given some time of sustained sobriety, recover the ability to make good choices, to use good judgment. And uh, so we, we went into detail about that last week. I recommend you to that video. And as always, I loved the conversations that, that uh, arose spontaneously between uh, Odie and myself. Mm. In fact, a word about that is that some of the topics, including today's topic, which is uh, the title I've given it is The Roots of Addiction. We'll be looking at the psychological roots of addiction. This material I've covered in various forms in previous podcasts over the last year, except the difference is, a major difference, is that Odie wasn't here. And so in our dialogue, new insights arise spontaneously. Some come out of, out of, out of your thoughts, Odie. Mm -hmm. Some of them come out of the dialogue itself kind of between us. And so I don't believe that, uh, that any podcast that we do, including podcasts that cover material that, that perhaps before I shared on my own, are nearly the same as it is as a function of the dialogue or the dialectic between you and me. Mm -hmm. And so I, I don't feel like there's any redundancy at all in the fact that we're re repeating some material, right. including today, talking about the roots of addiction. So um, one final word, and uh, this is channeled to me from Austin, is I want to recommend and invite you to submit questions as Odie and I move through this material today. We'll do our best to address those questions. <clears throat> Uh, also invite you to recommend friends to join us, including in real time today. We'll be here for the better part of an hour now to discuss uh, the roots of addiction and would love to uh, invite your interaction and friends of yours, their interaction as well. Um, uh, we're going to start today by talking about addictive behaviors uh, and how we utilize those as antidotes. And I want to take a slight turn from, from my outline for today. I want to draw attention to one of our most faithful um, participants every week is Angela McLeod. Angela is with us from Washington. Uh, she shares questions and comments uh, regularly with us uh, in our weekly podcast. I'm very grateful to you, Angela. Odie and I express gratitude for your <laughs> engaging with us. You become a third member of our weekly uh, panel discussion, and I really do mean that sincerely. And this week in particular, I want to extend to all of our viewers an invitation to go to the Ask an Addiction Specialist Facebook uh, site to read Angela's uh, um, uh, post this week. I think it's extremely valuable looking at the role of, of stress in addiction and ways to reduce stress. As Angela put it in, in, in the post, ways of moving from our sympathetic nervous system arousal to a parasympathetic nervous system calm relative to the previous stressful state. It's a wonderfully written article that she directs us to. And it also, I want to draw attention to something that Angela talks about, which is there, there, there are really quite infinite forms for reducing stress. Like you have certain hobbies that you mm -hmm. engage in that reduce stress uh, for you, I, as, as I do for myself. There are all kinds of skillful means. One thing that we've come to a lot in our conversations over the last year is looking at various forms of meditation. I, I'm most familiar with mindfulness practice. We've introduced that and engaged with that periodically throughout our series uh, over the last year, and we'll continue to do that. 
Uh, Angela has expertise for sure in mindfulness meditation, but she also brings a specialized expertise in what's referred to as Qigong, which is a, an Eastern informed approach to managing stress basically through the body, through the body and the breath. And I want to uh, draw your attention again to the article that she shared because it, she discusses Qigong there. And also we have intentions of her joining us for a, a podcast over the next month or two where she'll be joining me from Washington uh, to discuss the work that she's doing, uh, uh, introducing this form of, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's kind of a body movement meditation of Qigong. She'll be introducing that here in one of our future podcasts. So I wanna thank you, Angela, for, for your contribution and recommend uh, all of our viewers to, to re uh, review the resources that are on our uh, Facebook page. There's a lot of resource there, links to podcasts, links to materials such as what you shared, Angela. So thank you. So I started by saying addictive behaviors are an antidote, and we could say to stress, mm -hmm. stress being the number one trigger for relapse, and that's really what, how Angela begins the article that she, uh, that she wrote um, uh, uh, or introduced this week in, in the Facebook group. But more specifically, I want to look today from a psychological perspective of how it is that addictive behaviors serve as antidote to shame. And we'll unpack shame as we have before. We'll unpack it with a definition. We'll also come to an understanding of why it's important to talk about shame in the context not only of, of addiction, but also recovery. Mm -hmm. So let me start with this question. Why would we pick shame? Why shame? What does that matter? As we've discussed before, and I'll briefly summarize today, shame is the most adverse human emotion. Mm -hmm. uh, to put that into more technical language, it's the, uh, the human emotion that ends up being associated with the highest levels of stress. Mm -hmm. Most of the research looks at levels of uh, uh, cortisol uh, uh, release in the brain, cortisol being one of the two stress hormones, uh, cortisol and adrenaline. And if you look at sadness, if you look at other emotions, and these are all emotions that most of us would say are unpleasant some part of the time, sadness, anger. What am I forgetting? What's another, what's another, sadness, anger, fear, okay. and then you can look at nuances of disappointment, loneliness, mm -hmm. jealousy, just had a conversation about jealousy with the group of men I met with today. If you look at these various emotions, most of us have intimate familiarity with this range of emotions. What's interesting is that of those emotions, none of them compares to shame in terms of how much cortisol is released in the brain, in terms of how much stress we experience around that. So let's talk about shame for just a moment uh, as we move forward today to, first of all, define shame and then see if we can come to some understanding of why it would be so stressful for us to experience it. In English, we've talked about this, is that shame is associated with two different sides of a coin. The first side is anytime, I'm threat, thre anytime that I'm threatened in terms of my connection to you, mm -hmm. what psychology refers to as social acceptance, any threat to that will evoke a shame response, which will evoke also an elevated cortisol response in the brain, which manifests as being stressed out. So there's the threat to social acceptance on the one hand. The other side of the coin is a threat to self-esteem. Any threat to my feeling okay about myself, my self-confidence will also go into a very similar shame response. So let me ask my friend Odie a question. How, it, how is it, Odie, from your uh, understanding, how is it that a threat to my being accepted by others could possibly be connected to the other side of the coin, a threat to my self-esteem? 
How do you understand those two to be related to each other? Because we're using that as kind of our double definition of this single phenomenon of shame. Hmm. Immediately I go, I geared towards uh, high school life, hmm. you know, trying to fit in <clears throat> with uh, a popular crowd, hmm. so to speak. And, you know, if you're, if given the situation of I'm not able to be a part of the popular group, yeah. I'm not gonna feel too good yeah, confidence yeah. Why or wise or self-esteem wise. Yeah, you know? yeah. And in fact, that's a great example, and let's do this with it. Let's imagine that you don't know yet. Let's say that you're for your first day of high school. Mm -hmm. And you, in fact, this, this actually relates to an experience I'll share about myself, I won't put it on you. When I started high school as a 14-year-old boy, mm -hmm. my family had just moved to town the week before. It was a brand new town, a brand new high school. So the first day of high school, I literally walked onto campus and did not know a soul. Mm -hmm. That would not be a setup for a great deal of confidence. <laughs> so you can imagine that little Bobby Weathers was really anxious and also not feeling a whole lot of high self-esteem. I was right. feeling uh, very self-conscious, in fact. I did for several weeks. I can remember very uncomfortable inside my own skin. Let me ask you a question, Odie. So okay. let's say in this example, Bobby Weathers walks onto campus at Redwood High School mm -hmm. and the first day of school doesn't know a soul. How do you think it's going to go for him as he presents to others in terms of maybe fitting in with their social group? This is somebody who obviously does not look comfortable inside his own skin. That would have been me. How would that go? I would... Uh, How open do you think groups would be? Not too uh, open. No, <laughs> especially if you think about it in adolescence, yeah. is that in adolescence it's all about peer connection and so on. And here comes somebody who, first of all, is alien, uh -huh. strange, <laughs> and on top of that even looks stranger than that because he mm. looks so anxious. <laughs> and so you can see how there's a ripple effect. It's like you start off by in my case, being anxious, mm -hmm. and then you get you don't get accepted, you don't get invited into any social group, right. which only stirs more anxiety, which only stirs more rejection. There's that angle, mm -hmm. or there's what you talked about, which is, let's say that you're not starting high school. Did you start high school on the, on the first day in a completely new group? Did you did you know people at your high school? Yeah, a little bit. But let's say I, that you knew somebody, so I, yeah, I knew exactly my story. No, yeah, I knew some people. So if you knew some people, You'd start off that way, but let's say that for whatever reason they give you the cold shoulder. For whatever reason, mm -hmm. I don't know. Maybe they don't like your pants or your shirt or something <laughs> like this. I don't know. And then that can stir anxiety or self-consciousness, right. and soon enough you're anxious, which only leads to them being less accepting or less, less inviting of you. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's, a, it's a case of uh, where the poor get poorer. If I'm already poor in right. self-esteem... I'm probably going to be poor in terms of social acceptance. Mm -hmm. And you could just reverse that and say, if I'm already threatened in terms of social acceptance, chances are my self-esteem is going to take a dive, right. and that's not going to make it easier. That's going mm -hmm. to make it harder. So um, I think it's good that you picked that example from high school because there's no time up to that point where we're as tied into peer approval as, mm -hmm. as we are in adolescence. Yeah, Finally, our, our center of gravity is moving from our families of origin mm -hmm. towards our peers. Right. And so it's just killing to yeah. not find acceptance there. Absolutely. Um, so, so we've, we've, and what we're talking about is that uncomfortable feeling is under the umbrella of what we're calling shame, mm -hmm. which is that I'm scared to death that I'm not going to be accepted. Mm -hmm. And I feel awful about that inside. I feel awful about myself. That combination manifests as all the physical feelings that we have uh, of shame. And we've talked about this in detail. I'll leave it at that for right now. This is really what we're calling shame. And now my initial premise was this, is that our addictive behaviors serve as an attempted antidote 
to this awful feeling that we're calling shame. Let me talk a little bit about addiction for just a second, because what we're talking about here, you know, it wasn't hard for you to identify that for yourself. It isn't for me, and we come from different backgrounds. Mm -hmm. You knew some people. I didn't, but it's kind of like all roads in some ways lead to that feeling of shame, Mm -hmm. is that if you're not feeling hooked in, that's going to affect you. And I definitely was feeling on the outside Mm -hmm. and was already coming in feeling insecure, so it was bad for me. So what we're talking about is something that's human, and what I would ask you as our viewers can you recognize yourself in this? Just notice that there's a little note up there, and I'll come to it in just a second. I'm asking you if you can find yourself in, the, in, in this example. You may not have had it. In fact, I hope that you didn't have exactly my experience, but that was my experience. Mm-hmm. And you may relate more to Odie's experience, but the fact is we're talking about a human emotion that's very much in the context of our relationships. I'm going to shift to talking about addiction in just a moment, but I want to check out the message that Odie is, uh, is tapping here. Oh, this is from Angela. She says, thanks to Dr. Bob and Odie. Uh, it's an honor to be included in your conversations here. You're very included, Angela. You're very welcome. Thank you. Oh, this is, this is great. Uh, this, this is going to feel really good to read. Your style of combining top-notch information along with real-life examples and in a lively interactive mode including with you, is always very engaging to watch and full of useful information. And she sends a heart. Thank you. Well, we send hearts back to you, Angela. Thank you. That's wonderful. I don't think that we can get enough of positive reinforcement um, from people that matter to us. And you carry so much depth and integrity throughout. You're, You're very much... I don't even, I was going to say a silent partner, but you're not silent. You're really visible with us here. And so I know sometimes Austin will include your name in comments that are made. Last week, I think it, your name wasn't included, but, but we sussed it out. <laughs> and that's got to be Angela who shared that. So thank you for joining us, Angela. You model for others uh, as well, Angela how we'd like others to be uh, feel completely safe in joining us. Mm-hmm. Feel very respectful of every single thing that you've shared with us and invite uh, uh, all of our colleagues who are viewing us today to, to share in a similar spirit. So thank you for that kindness. I appreciate that. <laughs> so we're talking about shame as being a common experience. Mm-hmm. I want to talk about addiction in a similar way. And this may feel counterintuitive until I give you a little bit of, of, of data to support what I'm going to assert here. Mm-hmm. 25% of Americans over the age of 12 are currently addicted to psychoactive substance, and that includes alcohol, nicotine, and all the other drugs of abuse that you can think of. Okay, mm-hmm. It does exclude one major psychoactive substance, and that would be caffeine. Mm. If we included caffeine, then the statistic would be significantly higher. (laughs) I think I read where 80% of Americans on a daily basis ingest caffeine, uh, adults. um, And by the way, the statistic is 12 and above. I don't want to slip that by, it's significant. I can tell you it's significant because the men that I just met with today, most of them, in fact, one of them talked about it. At age 12, he was selling marijuana. Mm. At age 13, he had graduated from drinking alcohol periodically to drinking it uh, excessively daily. Mm -hmm. So there he was, 12 and 13, and that's commonly my experience working with the individuals I work with that that are are dealing with addiction. Many of them dealing with either alcohol uh, addiction or more uh, severe uh, uh, addictions to heroin and methamphetamine. Mm -hmm. And, And for almost all of them, their exposure to uh, psychoactive drugs, including alcohol, 
and nicotine uh, and marijuana began 12, 13, 14. So, so the statistic that's put out by, by the National, uh, it's the um, uh, National Institute for Drug Abuse, uh, 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 the statistic goes down to age 12. 25% of Americans 12 and older are currently addicted to substance. That right away is eye-opening. Mm -hmm. That means one out of four of us are addicted. And I'm coming from addiction myself to substance, and so I include myself in that group having been addicted. Uh, but then, then it opens up, and I really have appreciated, Odie, your presence here, mm -hmm. because what it does is it opens up our conversation beyond just addiction to substance to addiction to substance as well as other behaviors. Mm -hmm. And when we open this up to ad addictive behaviors, and let's name some of those behaviors. We've talked about sex addiction, various mm -hmm. forms of sex addiction. Uh, we can include uh, food addictions. Yep. We can include gambling addictions. Uh, I just met with Dr. Garaja Doggy. One of his specialties is internet addiction, wow. video game addiction, and so on. Mm -hmm. uh, we can go down a long list, and plenty of people are addicted to work. Mm -hmm. That is to say, they're addicted, they, they're addicted to something that's doing damage to them in their relationships, and they cannot stop. That's, yeah. really, that's really our working definition of, of addiction. Well, it turns out then if you interviewed people 12 years and older in America around behavioral addictions, 90% mm -hmm. of us right now have at least one behavioral addiction. That's on top of substance addiction. Right. So, for example, when I lead groups with uh, uh, young men and women who are in recovery from addiction to substance, this came up today, is that that we were talking about relationship addiction, relationship-based addiction, including sex addiction. We talked about, um, oh, uh, one individual talked about video game addiction. Mm. Literally just everything else goes to the periphery because that's all this person does when he gets in an addictive mm. state of mind. And so it's just to suggest that it's a much larger number of us that are addicted to behaviors beyond just ingesting psychoactive substances. Yeah. I want to say this, is that what this does is this levels the playing field. Mm -hmm. Is that, Odie, your addictions or my addictions don't separate us from humankind. In fact, it's part of being human mm -hmm. is this universal element of addiction. Mm -hmm. I want to ask you where that lands for you for me to say that. I know we've talked about this before, but just to pause for a second and really take that in, is that to be human is what this statistic suggests mm -hmm. is to be addicted. Right. Thank you. I think, um, yeah, I think that's pretty, uh, we, I don't, I don't know where I heard it before, but I've heard that we are creatures of habitual, 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 I don't know. The, habitual something. So, yeah, exactly. Yeah, so yeah. we're habitual beings, so yeah, yeah. we're eventually going to have something that uh, we do habitually. Yeah. yeah whether it's a, a good, something good or bad, mm -hmm. you know. And I think it's interesting what you mentioned. Um, maybe you said it before, but it just landed more right now mm -hmm. is that it's 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 interesting to see that around that age of like 12 uh -huh. it seems like mm -hmm. not only in substance but also in behavior yes because yes. i've heard and um i've researched with uh, porn addiction as yes. well mm -hmm. around that area is yeah. when yeah. Yeah. Uh, kids get addicted you yeah know? Yeah. If you think about it developmentally, there's a lot going on, not only physically in terms of hormone right. changes on the cusp of adolescence, but there's a tremendous amount going on cognitively mm. in terms of, of uh, and we just talked about it interpersonally, right. is that the primary reference point is no longer the family of origin, it's peers. Mm. And so it's being modeled amongst my peers. I can still remember my freshman year in high school having a buddy come up to me and show me a porn magazine 
showing me things that I'd never seen before, and it was alien to me. Right. But it was clearly, uh, if I'd been a part of his social group, mm-hmm. that would have been normalized. I wasn't, yeah. and so it just seemed kind of odd and disturbing to me. Right. Uh, at, the, at the time, that was at first exposure, but it wasn't to him. And I heard stories that he told me about he and his buddies around sexuality with, with uh, girls at that point, right. uh, their, uh, you know, our age in high school and so on. And it was kind of like it went into, uh, I, it was so far beyond anything I could imagine at that mm-hmm. point, but it wasn't that case for him. Right. My own my own acquaintanceship with addiction came later in my life, but it, I would have been very vulnerable at that time. And if his group had been my primary reference point, mm-hmm. who's to say? Who's right. to say, really? And so it's, I, I, yeah, around that age, I appreciate you saying that. Around that age, uh, it, it may be the, represent the onset of behavioral addictions as well. It mm-hmm. makes sense to me for reasons cognitively as well as physically, as well as in terms of peer peer mm-hmm. reference and so on. Somebody mm-hmm. shared here about uh, the asked question about addiction to objects. I'm sorry that I missed that because mm-hmm. certainly, in fact, when you're talking about habitual, our habitual drive to acquire things, right? Yeah, yeah. you know, whether it's a car or uh, a shiny <laughs> object or <laughs> saving stuff, hoarding stuff. You can oh, think of yeah. all the manifestations of the acquisitive uh, nature of us as human beings mm-hmm. um, and that it's, that it's in some ways built into the, uh, uh, the very fabric of the, the way that we operate and maybe developmentally um, uh, our entry point into it is around this age. Um, I've mentioned it before and I'll mention it now because I think it helps to locate this. I use the term addiction because I like the term. The reason I like the term is its root, uh, its Latin root is from the word addictus, which simply means to be enslaved. Uh, Addictus is slave. Will you read that by doesn't it? Yeah. Okay, I'll come back to that in just a second. Thank you. Somebody asked another question. I'll come back to that in just a second. So addictus is to is is a slave. So mm-hmm. this way of thinking about it is addiction is to be enslaved. And it doesn't matter what I'm enslaved mm-hmm. to. Yeah. I can be enslaved to marijuana, I can be enslaved to porn, I can be enslaved to shiny objects. It doesn't really yeah. matter. And chances are we have multiple enslavements. That statistic, by the way, ninety percent of the people said they had at least one. Behavioral addiction. It wasn't saying they had only one. Mm. They had at least one. <laughs> and yeah. uh, I tease about this, and we've done it here before, is that I figure that the other 10% really didn't understand mm-hmm. the question. <laughs> I think it's that universal. Uh, or, to, or to put it more in the frame of shame is that it may be universal, but none of us, and I know you've shared this in your own experience, Odie, and mm-hmm. I certainly have my own the shame and stigma that surround coming mm. out with our addictions. Yeah. I don't care what it is. It's extremely vulnerable. And even though it's universal, I guess there's a way that you say that we might operate kind of in a culture of hypocrisy. Mm-hmm. Oh, there goes Odie and Bob, and they have their respective addictions. I sure don't have that, which would be, in most cases, factually inaccurate. Yeah. <laughs> you know, But it's understandable because it's, it's a shadow of our culture, and it's a shadow of us individually. It's very difficult for us to share with one another uh, uh, this shadow of addiction. Mm-hmm. A, a, a question that came up just a moment ago was: Doesn't doesn't addiction doesn't addiction or don't addictive behaviors uh, affect and over time change the human brain? Mm-hmm. And I think it's a great comment. And in the context of talking about 12, 13, 14 year olds, if you think about all the cognitive change, change that's going on developmentally, emotionally, cognitively, interpersonally, mm-hmm. all that's going on morally. All that's going on at that cusp of adolescence, it's a hugely critical point. I'll give you one example. Up to 12 or 13, 
a child is not capable because the brain is not capable of operating in abstract thinking. So mm -hmm. a child is not capable of algebra. Right. Algebra represents abstract thinking. X plus Y equals Z. Well, the X and the Y, they symbolize some quantity, but they're just symbols of that. So they don't represent, it's not like one apple plus one apple equals two apples. What the heck is X? What the heck is Y? And who thought of Z? <laughs> you know? And so we're not capable of that at all up to a certain age. And then beginning in adolescence, at least there's the opportunity, the brain's developed enough where we, where we might be able to think, that, think abstractly. Right. It's referred to as formal operations. And up to that point, our brains operate in what's referred to as concrete operations. I can understand apples, but don't give me X's and Y's. Mm -hmm. Well, that manifests also in terms of morality because up to that point, up to the point of being able to take to be able to abstract myself out and look at things objectively, I can't really imagine what you feel about something. Mm -hmm. A child, if you think about it, developmentally is congenitally egocentric. We all start off that mm -hmm. way. Yeah. I'll come to that next comment in just a second. We all start off that way. We all start off egocentric. And the capacity for what's called social perspective taking, which is mm -hmm. to look at how Odie's feeling or mm -hmm. Odie looks at how Bob's feeling, right. that capacity is really rudimentary until we reach this age of 13, 14, 15 mm -hmm. of abstract thinking. It's really not possible in terms mm -hmm. of brain. So can you imagine the revolution that goes on emotionally to be able to imagine that? And I mentioned morally because if I don't know how this would feel to you, I might, I might do something that would hurt you with no conscience at all because mm. what's the problem? But there comes a point where I can begin to actually feel what you would feel. Right. And then if I violate that, if I violate you, mm -hmm. I actually violate myself because mm. it's not okay for me to harm you right. because I know what this is like for you. Mm. So, so it goes. And so this is an incredibly important developmental period. How this ties back into the comment about the brain is that, is that to bathe the brain and the hyperstimulation of any addictive behavior or substance is to divert the brain's normal developmental kind of trajectory. And so you've heard this if you've been in and around the world of recovery, is that if Bob and Odie got addicted, uh, actively addicted, like this gentleman today who said to me, he started drinking alcoholically at age 13. Mm -hmm. And you can imagine, and we won't go into the physiology of it, but we'll just suggest for right now it's enough to say that brain is very, it's very unlikely that brain is going to have a normal developmental uh, uh, mm -hmm. uh, uh, kind of momentum moving forward right. because it's being altered actively, chemically every day. So mm -hmm. whether it's marijuana or alcohol or any kind of hyper-stimulating behavior, mm -hmm. exposure to hyper-sexual material, right. uh, exposure to hyper-aggressive material, mm -hmm. thinking of video games, the brain is being affected and molded, and so these stimuli are definitely going to affect it. If you add chemistry to that, mm -hmm. uh, it really is a problem. And so the, the kind of conventional wisdom in many recovery circles is that whatever point I started drinking is the point at which I stopped developing emotionally. Mm -hmm. And there's probably some wisdom in that. Yeah. I don't want to get too literal about that. But for example, if I never developed peer relationships outside of getting high together, mm -hmm. you and I were buddies and we got high together, uh, and then we then and we keep doing that for ten years. Mm -hmm. It's almost like Rip Van Winkle. We wake up ten years from now and we kind of missed school the day that they taught about emotional and interpersonal connection. Mm -hmm. And so there's a real limit. And so there's a lot of catching up that has to be done for individuals in addiction. And all of us that have dealt with addiction, 
which the point is, is all of us yeah. <laughs> know, know some version of this. That's why last week when we talked about growing up or growing back up in recovery, it's why that even is relevant to this conversation is because the brain is either diverted or stunted as a function of addiction. Mm -hmm. There was another comment or question. I'd like to come to that. Let me just pause for a second. Trying to understand the comment, so it just takes me a second. The, 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 the first comment is about a massage pillow. And I, I think what I want to ask around this one, I think to answer that is going to take me further astray than I want to go today. It's not an unimportant question. I just don't see it. It's hard for me. Generally, I can weave it into where we're going. May I ask this? I'm going to ask Austin if he'll forward that to me, and I'll get back to you individually. We can do this uh, a couple of ways. One is that that we can. I'll give you my uh, uh, the way to contact me through email after the group, and I'll respond to you there. Or if you want this to be public, we can do it through the um, uh, Facebook uh, group. Does that sound okay, Austin? I think I'd like to. Uh, well, well, I, I do want to respond, but I, I don't know how to weave that in right now. Uh, 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 Forgive me that. Okay, so I'll, I'll get to that question uh, individually with you. I appreciate you sharing it. So I'm just going to bookmark that as being the one about the massage pillow, okay? The second question is, okay, thank you. I'm glad that you got that. Uh, the, the second one is, shame can also be an addiction. I think that's brilliant. I think that's brilliant. And I have a hunch that's coming from you, Angela, <laughs> because you're, you're so familiar with this literature. Um, let's talk about that for one second. I'll tell you what, today, if this is Angela or anybody else who shared that, in the men's group today, we were talking about how it is that even unpleasant relationship can become one's baseline mm -hmm. to where that becomes the status quo. Right. And so what feels familiar to me is relationship that is uh, really chaotic. And that, mm -hmm. that was a, a couple of the men in the group today shared very personally about how they had had kind of one disastrous relationship after another. Mm. And we were talking about it in this vein. Well, if I use that as an analog to this comment about shame being an addiction, who would say that messed up relationships are desirable? And the conventional wisdom would be just stop doing that. <laughs> who would say that being in a state of shame is, is desirable? Just stop being ashamed. But it's more complicated than that in both cases. And I intend to come into that material uh, as we talk further into today's presentation. But I, I guess what I want to say for right now, and we will flesh this out more in terms of, of why just saying no to shame or why saying no to unhappy relationship or for that matter, why saying no to addictive behaviors is so complicated. Mm -hmm. It's not straightforward. But we can, that can become our baseline. And so if what I'm used to is feeling, let's say that in high school, I told you my first day of high school, I didn't know a soul and I was scared to death. I sat down at lunch at a table. There were some other guys there. I guess it was my attempt to meet some other people. Right next to me was sitting somebody. All I know is within a flash, a fist came through the air and smacked this guy right in the face, as, as close as you and I are. <laughs> and all I know is I was a little freshman, and that fist did not belong to a freshman. That was like a senior, at least, maybe in college. 
And so I had this massive fight going on with people hitting each other in the face. It was just horrible. It was like so traumatizing to me. (laughs) Now let's just suggest that that was my common experience for the next four years in high school. You know, I would have been a traumatized wreck. I was that day. I never have forgotten that. Wow. My introduction to high school was walking onto campus, not knowing anybody, sitting down <laughs> at lunch thinking that maybe I'll get to know this guy, only to see his face bashed in <laughs> by somebody who... It was, it was horrible beyond words for me. Yeah. So imagine if that's the norm for me. And rather than making such a fantastic scenario, imagine that any of us have grown up in an environment where there was chronic abuse. Mm whether it be physical abuse like that, or emotional abuse, or sexual abuse, or possibly neglect, where there's, a, where there's an abandonment of human connection yeah. by caregivers. If that becomes, we've talked about this today in the group, if that becomes my template, if that becomes mm-hmm. my blueprint, I, I asked the group today, I said, how do you think it would go if that's your template, mm-hmm. if you've grown up in an environment, we were talking about a double bind and how that affects people. I won't go into that right now. Mm-hmm. It's enough to say that it ends up being a really confusing communication right. coming from parents, let's say. Mm-hmm. How does that affect one's blueprint? And people got it in the group. They said, well, it makes for kind of a screwy blueprint. And I said, and how do you think it might go for you in your first intimate relationships, let's say in high school, if that's mm-hmm. when you began yeah. dating? And people got this too, is that that actually becomes the norm. Yeah. It's a little bit like those funhouse mirrors mm-hmm. that bend and distort our bodies. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Have you, okay, okay. Yeah. I wasn't sure if that's just an old old guy's thing. Oh, okay. no, no, no. Okay, so I think um, car- right, right at the cusp of, okay. of that. Between old and new. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. So think of what a funhouse mirror does in terms of distorting your body, making you really tall and thin or really small and squat, whatever it is. Imagine that that's what happens to you in terms of the blueprint about feedback about relationships and feedback about ourselves. Of course we'd believe that. And of course, then in that sense, if, if, if the view that's given me is that I'm worthless, no self-esteem, and that I'm only worthy of being rejected, if that's my daily diet for mm-hmm. year after year growing mm-hmm. up in a family, why would I believe any differently about myself? And so you could say in that case that, that shame is the baseline and that there's actually some comfort in the familiar and this is where you get the addictive component, is that even if I'm used to, I'm thinking about my own experience with addiction, there were substances that I took that actually made me so hyper-stimulated, there was nothing pleasant about it, mm. but I got so addicted to it that that actually kind of became the normal. Mm. Or if, you, if, you're out, if your addiction has been to alcohol, uh, you begin to get kind of used to hangovers, mm-hmm. slurring words, uh, making a fool out of yourself. <laughs> There's nothing about that that seems all that admirable, but once... In, into an addictive kind of state of mind and a, and a set of behaviors that becomes normal. So mm-hmm. I, it's counterintuitive to think that something so unpleasant can become addictive, but it does. Thank you for the comment. So we've already established that addiction is a universal human phenomenon. We've defined addiction as my engaging in some behavior uh, that is destructive to me and that I can't seem to stop. I want to talk a little bit about where you can get some traction in, mm. in terms of, of working with addiction, whether in ourselves or within people that we care for. Addiction definitely uh, puts a limit on my capacity to work. If my work is school, then that would, it would affect my schoolwork. Mm-hmm. If my work is a job, like, like here we are today, it affects my ability to work. It also affects my relationships radically. And that begins to get us into conversation. Today there was a, a gentleman to the right of me who said, 
he said his incentive for sobriety, for recovery from uh, drug addiction, is he wants to stabilize his life and he wants to start a family. Mm -hmm. And he knows that, that in an addicted state of mind, mm -hmm. that, that neither one of those goals is really achievable. Yeah. We've already talked about shame as being a primary root of addiction. There's another comment. I'll get to that in just a second. We've talked about how it is that once in shame, the poor get poorer. Mm -hmm. If I start off feeling kind of iffy about relationships, that'll go into my self-esteem. And if iffy about my self-esteem, that makes it even more iffy for me to be accepted. And so on it goes. There's mm -hmm. a vicious cycle that we get involved in. And then I'll pause right here to respond to the question <laughs> on the screen. Yeah, I like this. We've become immune uh, to things that most people yeah. would find toxic. It's really a powerful analogy to addiction, is that, that, that it's no accident that we call it intoxicated. Mm -hmm. Intoxicated, the word toxic is in that statement. And actually, in active addiction, intoxication is the desirable goal. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I'd like to be toxic, thank you very much. <laughs> and so it be, we become immune to it, it, it becomes the normal. This is Angela who says, your point about how normal development stops when we go into active addiction really stands out to me. Good. Because when we get sober, we have the dual project of functioning as adults in society at the same time as doing the inner work to catch up, growing up where we left off. That's, that's well said, that's well said. That makes it much more complicated. Mm -hmm. In fact, speaking of complicated, I started today's group with the men by saying, have any of you experienced somebody saying to you, why can't you just say no, Odie? Mm. Why can't you say no, Bob? And not only did people's hands shoot up, but a couple of people used curse words for how they feel about somebody saying that to them. <laughs> why can't you just say no? And I think similarly about the complicated nature of recovery. Well, what's the problem? Just stop using. But the problem that Angela just pointed out is it's not just about stopping using. It's about rebuilding oneself, both yeah. socially as well as within. Mm -hmm. It's an incredibly forbidding task. And one of the things we've established is that that kind of task, which is stressful, itself can be a trigger for relapse. And so the irony is that my sobriety may be so demanding that I'll want to retreat to the cocoon of safety that I had in my old normalcy, which was being high, being loaded. Yeah. So my, my shorthand answer to this question, there's lots of ways of answering this question, why can't you just say no, is my shorthand in the context of today's conversation, is that my addictive behaviors have multiple determinants, one of which is as an antidote to shame. Mm -hmm. And so if you take away my antidote to shame, feeling bad about myself, mm -hmm. feeling ostracized from people I care about, then what will I be left with? Mm -hmm. Makes me think of three things that addictive behaviors supply. This isn't meant to be exhaustive, but this will cover a lot of the territory. The first thing is, it, is that we self-medicate to numb out. Mm -hmm. yeah. Whatever the behavior is, whatever the drug is, if I can numb out, in the context of talking about shame, yeah. if I can just numb out, if I can, if, if, if I can anesthetize myself, for a moment, mm -hmm. from feeling lousy about myself, wouldn't that be desirable? Yeah. Related to that, to numbing out, is getting high. What? Me ashamed? What? Me depressed? I'm not, I'm not depressed. I'm flying high, brother. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so it doesn't matter what the addiction is. Mm -hmm. There's a way that we can almost like go over 
go over the wall of whatever it is that stands in our way. And then thirdly, and I think it's really important to talk about this in the context of shame, is that shame, uh, excuse me, that addiction will make me feel connected. Yeah. Think about think about that boy. His name was Bob too. That showed me that pornography. That mm. that was within the fir- first few weeks. You can imagine. I was just I was having my mind blown as a freshman on campus. <laughs> I mean, this guy gets beat up right in front of me. A few weeks later, somebody shows me the most explicit yeah. pornography. I just had no concept that that was anything that people carried around in right. their backpack, and he did. And so, so uh, can you imagine? If he had mattered to me, why wouldn't I have pursued that, mm. whatever he brought to me? It might as well have been a joint of marijuana or a bottle of, of liquor or, in this case, a magazine that was pornographic. It was very stimulating to me because I was a boy and it was very stimulating to me. It's just that we didn't have enough connection. Mm. But if I wanted to feel connected, I might have overridden the fact that it was in some ways kind of repulsive to me. Yeah. It was beyond where I was developmentally, that's for sure. Mm. But to connect, I'll do that. I'll do that. So if you think about it as shorthand... We, we, we develop addictions to numb out, to get high, to feel connected. Mm. These become our fixes. You know how you talk about an addiction. Mm-hmm. You know, are you going to get your fix? Well, you can think about that. It really is a fix. And what is mm. it that we fix? Temporarily what we do is we fix these unpleasant feelings inside. Yeah. And that's where one of the primary models in, in uh, addiction theory is the self-medication hypothesis, which is basically no matter what the addiction is, whether it's to a substance or behavior, it's my way of medicating myself away from feelings that are undesirable mm-hmm. to move into a state, even if it's temporary, that feels better. Yeah. Comments? Uh, I don't think so. Does it land so far? Does it make sense what I'm saying? Yeah, everything's peachy. Peachy, peachy keen. <laughs> I, wish that, I wish that it were peachier keen than it is. Let's see, there's a comment. Why is it after a year of sobriety, this is the comment, why is it after a year of sobriety do I think I deserve a drink? I don't know why that is, but I want you to know that that's well nigh universal, okay? I just talked last week in another group, and somebody said, you know, when I want to celebrate, I want to drink, and when I don't want to celebrate, I want to drink, (laughs) which kind of covers all the bases. You know, if I'm down, kind of like with self-medication, I'd like to lift my spirits, and I can do that literally with spirits, with alcohol. I can do that with behaviors. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so when I'm down, I want to medicate myself up, and when I'm up, I want to celebrate my being up by what? By exercising my addiction. Mm-hmm. And so it, it uh, there's a more complex answer I could give to that, but it would require us about a year of conversation, <laughs> it occurs to me. As the brain stays very vulnerable to addiction, the shorthand on this, and I'd refer you to prior episodes of our podcast here, the, the, from a physiological perspective, to understand the role of dopamine and the pleasure center in addiction would go, take us a long way towards answering your question with more depth. And I don't have the opportunity right now or the time to go into that. But that the brain circuitry, the, the, the neuronal pathways that develop in active addiction, you know, you used the word habitual earlier. Mm-hmm. Uh, psychology calls, habits, calls it habit strength. Mm-hmm. There's great habit strength that gets tied to behaviors and to substances, and those are intimately linked to the reward or pleasure center in the brain. And one of the significant chemicals involved in that that gets released around our addictive behaviors mm-hmm. is dopamine, and the brain has a, an unforgettable tie to that. I'll cite one bit of research and then move on. Um, 
I read this research uh, a year or two ago, so it's a little bit rusty for me. The research was done with laboratory rats. And if you expose a laboratory rat early in its development to the equivalent for a rat of a single line of cocaine, mm -hmm. and so for a rat that would be the equivalent of snorting a little tiny particle mm -hmm. of cocaine. Mm -hmm. I don't know that rats snort it. I think they actually <laughs> inject it or put it in a liquid. I'm not sure, but imagine a rat snorting a single particle of cocaine, the equivalent of a line of cocaine for a human being. It, and then they review what would be the equivalent of, how old are you, Odie? Do you mind if I ask? Not at all, 30. You're 30. Mm. Let's take you when you're 75 now. So you and I are laboratory rats, and we'll do the laboratory rat equivalent of going from 30 to 75. Okay. So we reach you in seniority, and we test your brain by putting a single line of cocaine, or if you're a rat, a single particle of cocaine, on this black, it shows up on this black countertop here right now. We expose you to that and we hook up your brain to a brain scan, your brain will spike in the presence having been exposed to one particle mm. of, of cocaine when you were 30. Mm. Actually, in the research, it would be you were 15, right. and then the equivalent of being 75. So mm. you can imagine 60 years later, no further exposure to cocaine, single exposure one time, 60 years later, your brain spikes in the presence of cocaine. There'd be no brain spike in the presence of that if you didn't have that exposure because mm -hmm. it would look like confectioner's sugar or something. Mm -hmm. I, well, you have to pick some white substance yeah. that the, the rat <laughs> hasn't been exposed to. It's just to suggest that this, the, the brain sears into memory via the glutamate circuitry. The brain sears into memory these addictive substances, including drinking, including all the other addictions we're talking about, and it's nearly unforgettable. Doesn't mean that it, it, it doesn't mean that it's indelible that you can't stop addictive behaviors, mm -hmm. but what you can't stop is the brain's response. Mm -hmm. In a rat that far down the ro road, if that rat's name is Odie or Bob, doesn't forget. Hmm. It's pretty amazing. It doesn't yeah, forget. You get the logic here behind once in recovery, always in recovery, mm -hmm. because the brain doesn't forget. Right. We have choices. Mm -hmm. If the frontal cortex of you and me is, in, is engaged, which it is when we're not addicted, mm -hmm. we have a lot of choice about putting brakes on that. But in terms of the midbrain, we don't have choice about the midbrain registering whatever our addiction was. Mm -hmm. It's, it's well-nigh seared in there. Mm -hmm. So, Good news, bad news. I'll yeah. go with the good news. Let me wrap up today's presentation by moving through a, a last unit of material and then suggesting an exercise. In my work with clients that I work with around addiction, it's very important for me to illuminate the downside to these temporary fixes. Mm -hmm. It's somewhat self-evident because they're temporary. Mm -hmm. So no matter how good I feel with my addictive behavior or my addictive substance, it's temporary. And the downside is implied in the definition we just used because the definition that we're using of addiction is the compulsive returning to a behavior that in other words, I can't stop it mm. and it's harming me. It's harming me in my relationships. It's harming me in terms of my job. It's harming me in terms of my own physical body and so on. And so beginning to talk about this is helpful with clients. Mm -hmm. The way I do this is I talk about brain science, the way we have to, just what we just talked about with Odie and Bob as little rats. <laughs> we talk about brain science all the time and I, I, I find that it's very translatable to clients very early in recovery. I'm amazed by it. I work with some clients 
that are literally days into detox mm -hmm. and they can understand rudimentary brain science to talk about addiction. Mm -hmm. And it helps to illuminate what happens in our brains. But it, it's not enough to stop there. I also look at what yeah. happens in relationships. And so I use, I'm informed by attachment theory out of psychology to look at what happens in a brain that's non-responsive to others. Mm -hmm. So for you and your marriage or me and mine, right. our addictions make us far less responsive and that has direct consequences for our partners and relationship because we're so fundamentally attached. Mm -hmm. And so I'll talk about this in non-technical ways with clients. And the third thing I'll talk about is, I'll, this comes from my background and studies in existential psychology, is uh, we talk about life purpose and meaning. Mm -hmm. For example, the gentleman today that said, I want to stabilize in my life so that I can start a family. That's a big part of what motivates him to be a human being. He, mm -hmm. that's, that's, he really wants to do that. Yeah. That goes into his values, his sense of meaning and purpose, mm -hmm. and active addiction cuts right through that. Right. To talk about that in terms of the brain, the part of the brain that, that establishes meaning and purpose is located right behind my forehead right here, and that part goes dark in active addiction. Right. And I'm left with basically a lizard brain calling the show, and <laughs> lizards, as we know, eat their own young. Sorry for the graphic thing, yeah. but it's just like that, that is not a desirable state of affairs if you Definitely want to realize not. why God put you on this planet. Yeah. I don't think he put he, she, they put us on the planet to be little lizard bobbies and others. Yeah. Right? <laughs> Having said all of this, and this gets back to an earlier comment that was made, it's not enough to get all this information. All of this information is what psychology would call left brain information. It's in the, it's in the realm of language and logic. Mm -hmm. And if logic was enough, then we'd just say it's a lot makes it, if we were all Spock mm. from Star Trek, then I'll <laughs> stop my addiction. Unfortunately, what motivates us is, isn't just left brain derived. In fact, especially when we talk about addiction, addiction is understood as being a whole brain phenomenon that involves the right brain as much, if not more so, than the left brain. Mm. And let me give you an example of that. Is that our connection right now, Odie, mm -hmm. or our connection to the audience, like earlier we, 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 we engaged with you, Angela, with gratitude. That engagement is primarily understood from a psychological perspective from right brain to right brain. And so if left brain is logical and linear uh, and is rooted in language, what is right brain? Well, right brain is what connects us. It's more related to feeling. Mm -hmm. It's less connected to language. Um, think about think about this. Can you, could you adequately describe in a mm -hmm. sentence or two your love for your wife? If you say yes, you're in big trouble. <laughs> I cannot. It's hard to do that. Yeah. <laughs> in fact, I, I, I thought about this. I shared this recently. In fact, I shared it today with the group. Is that I I assumed across for, from probably adolescence on, I assumed that everybody knew what it was like to fall in love. Mm. And as I've worked clinically over the last 40 years, what I've discovered is that there's a significant group of people that I've worked with, surprisingly to me, that have never been in love. Mm -hmm. It's not that they don't know about love. They've seen TV shows and movies. Right. They've read novels that talk about this, and so they can talk about it. It's mm -hmm. like you can talk about your relationship to your wife, right. but it doesn't get at what it is to be in love. You don't have... That's something different than mm -hmm. just words about it. Right. I feel very similarly, by the way, around addiction. Yeah. is that I studied addiction a lot across the years. I studied shame a lot across the years. And until I myself became addicted and 
developed a very strong firsthand acquaintanceship with, a, with, with shame, I really had cognitive understanding about both addiction and shame. Mm -hmm. And now I know both quite intimately. And that intimate knowing is a right brain phenomenon. Mm. The brain is separated into basic structures and functions. And we're using this as a simple metaphor right now because it's more complicated, but for just for separation. Mm -hmm. if, the, if the left brain is logical and linear and language-based, the right brain is more holistic, relational, connecting, mm -hmm. feeling-oriented. It's actually tied much more into our creativity. Mm -hmm. And why would it be that addiction is at least as much a right brain phenomenon as left brain phenomenon? Well, that's our whole point today, is that shame is one of the primary underlying uh, foundations for addiction. And so my being disconnected from you, mm -hmm. or worse, your being abusive towards me, mm -hmm. is a right brain experience. Mm -hmm. And my resolution of that is itself a right brain uh, uh, antidote. Mm -hmm. If I can find some way to quell the trauma of our interaction, and I can do that through active addiction, then wouldn't it follow that I'm using a right brain antidote, even though it's temporary, we've established that, mm -hmm. I'm using a right brain antidote to calm down a right brain problem. Mm -hmm. So when somebody okay. comes to me and asks me a left brain thing, like, Bob, why can't you just say no? Well, I can say no, but it won't affect my addiction. <laughs> yeah. I can, and think about this in active addiction, where we've promised others, I'll stop this, I mm -hmm. won't do this, and yeah. we relapse. Yeah. If, if it were sufficient to say no, we're both basically bright, good people. If it was sufficient to be bright, good people, <laughs> we wouldn't do it. And yeah. so it's just to say that, that addiction is, first of all, it's the technical term is it's hypofrontal. It's underneath the frontal lobes in the midbrain. And secondly, it's very much related to the right hemisphere that doesn't really respond to yes and no or language at all. Mm -hmm. I have an image here that, that maybe uh, we can bring up. It's an image of a lava flow. What we're talking about today is trying to get down to the source of the root <laughs> of addiction. And for some reason, this image comes to me. There's been a lot of activity on, uh, in the Hawaiian Islands recently in terms of uh, uh, volcanic activity. And you think, it just blows my mind to think of liquid rock coming up from, I'll call it the center of the earth, just mm -hmm. relatively, coming up and flowing out onto land and then mm -hmm. into the ocean to where it solidifies. We're talking about getting right down to that core. Yeah. Um, and uh, I, I appreciate uh, the feedback today, including from Angela, uh, about the depth or the complexity of addiction. It, it, it's not a simple phenomenon. This core mm -hmm. comes from deep down, nor will its resolution be simple or uh, straightforward. It's, mm -hmm. it's more complicated. Uh, one more comment here, and then a quick exercise that will be done for today. Don't people relate to others mainly in the left brain too? Cut off from the right brain side, but still interacting in the left brain. It's true that we can have, and you can think about this, you can have relationships with people that is completely functional. Mm. Like digital communication, completely functional. Here's what communication theorists say. I'm looking at Odie right now. This is a master of digital communication. Austin. Uh, what did I just say? Odie. Wow. Wow. <laughs> I thought he was a taco. <laughs> okay, Mr. Banana, you're right. I said, Chris, sorry about that. Sorry. I'm, well, both of you are experts. I'll look at both the banana and the taco. You're both experts in digital communication, and it's incredibly important. Communications theorists say this, is that human communication is only 10% digital. Mm -hmm. 
The other 90% is the nonverbal right brain. And you think about that. Think about how all the ways this can go well in digital communication. There's lots of communication that can happen that's very effective. Mm -hmm. But think of the nuances that can get missed that go sideways in ways that are extremely destructive. That happens too. Is that tone of voice, mm -hmm. tempo, mm -hmm. breathing, even just the felt sense of being in the space with somebody else. I don't get that on the telephone. I don't get that even through Skype. Mm -hmm. And I use Skype and, and other technologies a lot. I'm grateful for that. But you miss so much. It's not to say they're not of value. But we have to acknowledge the fact that, that the 10% that is verbal really matters. Mm -hmm. But the part that really moves and motivates us is primarily what uh, psychology calls the paraverbal. All that means is everything besides the verbal mm -hmm. is that that's 90% of communication. And so thankful, thankfully, we have emojis. <laughs> Right? I rely on those because those help convey something that is hard in just words, right? Yeah. So we're getting a little bit closer because the right brain actually responds more to the subtleties of facial characteristics and images than does the left brain. The left brain is really tick, 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 words, <laughs> words only. So it is true that we communicate in both hemispheres, and it is true that some relationships are fine, being primarily left brain. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to more meaningful emotional transactions, that requires a whole brain, and that whole brain requires the right brain, and that right brain is massively affected by addiction. Mm -hmm. this, I promise this is the last question for right now. <laughs> are they intertwined? I'm not sure which are intertwined. I'm going to say the right and left brain, yes, <laughs> okay, is love addictive? It can be. Mm. It can be. In fact, in truth, uh, anything can be yeah. addictive. You remember how I said 90% of us have a behavioral addiction? We could list one of my favorite books on addiction is uh, uh, called Addiction and Grace by the psychiatrist Gerald May. love this book. And in this book, he actually, in the early pages, discusses his own addictions. Mm. And it's a, a list two columns long of addictions. And it's and I recognize myself in many of those. Mm -hmm. And so you can just begin thinking of anything. And in some ways, love is more addictive because of the power of a love relationship. Yeah. It will trump a lot of other pettier addictions for sure. Uh, uh, so definitely love can be addictive. I have, uh, I want to throw in a question. <laughs> if and then I'm going to have to kill you. Okay. <laughs> please do, please do, please do. So, Odie, can we go about a, a couple minutes longer? Are we okay? Or are we going to explode? Okay, okay, okay. We're going to hang in there, you guys. Odie has a question. So, being that maybe I missed it, maybe you did mention it, but being that uh, we're talking about relationships, uh, it seemed throughout the whole presentation here, <laughs> um, would you say or not say that it starts? With addiction, it really starts maybe with relationships. More specifically, the the first relationship that kind of everybody has, which is the caretaker. Yeah. Um, um, you know, I, 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 it's a great question. Great question, Odie. I just made an executive decision. I'm going to stop pressing forward. <laughs> we will do part two of today's okay. presentation <laughs> next week. It, because, because it, you know, there's... Uh, in philosophy, they call it a performative contradiction, and all that means is that I'm trying to present material on addiction and relationship, 
but I want to keep moving forward and cut off relationship. And it's a performative contradiction because in performing what I'm doing, I'm contradicting my message. So I'm just going to stop that right now. Okay. We will make no, for, no more forward movement today in honor of the questions and the dialogue. I'm very grateful for the feedback from our audience, Angela, and, and uh, all the rest that have, have uh, supplied questions and answers. It makes this come alive like it does mm -hmm. with you and me. So back to your question. Uh, the question that Odie's asking is, is wouldn't, couldn't you argue convincingly that addiction has its roots in relationship, maybe especially foundational relationships mm -hmm. earliest in our development. We talked about this idea of a template or a yeah. blueprint, yeah. and by far the most important kind of foundations for that blueprint are formed in the first years of life in whatever caregiving environment we have, good right. or bad. Mm -hmm. And so I want to tell you there's a lot of research mm -hmm. uh, done in addiction uh, uh, theory and research that looks at uh, what they refer to as primary attachments. I have a book at home um, that the title of it is simply Addiction as an Attachment Disorder. Mm. And all that is is technical language for a relationship disorder. Mm. And the book is really looking at early attachment, exactly what you're talking about. Okay. Uh, uh, it's been a few weeks ago that I presented a, a, a podcast and you and I uh, dialogued into it where I presented a quadrant model of looking at addiction from multiple perspectives. And we talked about a bio medical uh, perspective, uh, which uh, looks at addiction in terms of brain science, for example. Mm -hmm. We talked about a psychological perspective that looks at uh, addiction in terms of trauma and other psychological factors. We looked at addiction in terms of societal uh, uh, perspectives, such as breaking the law and going mm -hmm. to prison yeah. and uh, losing one's job, those kinds of things. But there mm -hmm. was one perspective that we also looked at, which is looking at the relational dimensions of addiction, which gets right at your question, mm -hmm. is that you can look at addiction from multiple perspectives and they all pertain. Because of my background in psychology and because relationship is really kind of front and center in my training in psychology, I tend to prioritize that. My background is not as a physician. Mm. My background is, is as a psychologist by training. And so I tend to prioritize that. In fact, oftentimes, mm. Odie, when clients come to see me that are interested in working on recovery, whether their own or maybe the want to support a loved one in recovery, mm -hmm. I'll establish very early on that my piece of the pie mm -hmm. really focuses on two things. And we've talked about both of them today. I focus on emotional well-being, mm -hmm and how we can reestablish that. And I focus also on relational healing. Mm. How can we heal the ruptures that have followed an addiction? Right. So emotion and relationship, basically. And I see a psychological perspective, of, uh, at least mine, focusing on those two dimensions. Mm -hmm. That's not all the pie, because there, there, there is the medical, there is, there is the legal, there, yeah. there, there, there are, are lots of other con contributing factors for sure, but I tend to focus on those two. Uh, because that's most of my expertise. So I think your question gets right to the core. I'll summarize uh, uh, as we wrap up today. I spent the better part of the morning reading a dissertation that was uh, reviewing the research that was done, established by uh, Kaiser Permanente Hospitals uh, uh, down in the San Diego area back in the 1990s. This is seminal research. And it's referred to as the Adverse Childhood Experience Research Study that looked at uh, adverse childhood experiences, basically childhood trauma and mm -hmm. neglect. Yeah. Uh, the acronym is ACE, Adverse Childhood Experiences, the ACE studies, and looked at these studies that were done with thousands of participants. I reviewed this in detail this morning. It was a really well-written dissertation that summarized this. This mm -hmm. is a student who's looking at post-traumatic stress disorder in Cambodian refugees mm -hmm. 
mm. uh, that came after the Khmer Rouge regime, came to the United States, and two or three generations later have statistically elevated levels of stress and trauma. Mm. And so this individual was tying in the ACE studies to what it's like to be in a refugee situation where uh, wholesale uh, uh, slaughter, genocide wow. was going on. So wow. it's an incredibly important research that, that she's doing. She works with this population up in the Long Beach area here in, uh, in Southern California. So she's summarizing the ACE studies and the interesting piece of this, and we've talked about it some here before, and it ties right into your question, is that to the extent that I've grown up, uh, adverse childhood experiences include a long list of things that can go wrong in early development. Right. So abandonment, mm -hmm. all versions of abuse, physical, uh, emotional, sexual mm -hmm. abuse, um, uh, parental uh, stressors such as active addiction by parents, mm -hmm. uh, uh, physical abuse between parents and witnessing that, mm -hmm. in addition to being abused oneself is witnessing that. There's a long list of these adverse childhood experiences and, and they're all rated in terms of their, uh, their negative out, uh, uh, impact. And you can literally add them up one plus one plus one plus one equals whatever, let's say four or five. And you, there's a, in psychology, it's a direct positive linear correlation. So if you're looking at me, it goes this way on a graph. It's just for each adverse childhood experience you add in early development, right. this person's uh, vulnerability to serious addiction goes up in perfect linear correlation to that. Wow. And so it'd be, it'd be hard to argue against the truth of right. what you just asked. <laughs> Be hard yeah. to argue. There are other factors, but certainly childhood experience uh, developmentally uh, lays down uh, huge vulnerability. I'll tell you quickly the, the, the uh, statistic is generally that 40 to 60 percent of addiction is heritable, and that's just a technical term for it's genetic. Right. 40 to 60 percent of, 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 of addiction is genetic. That means the other 40 to 60 percent is environmental, and we're talking about a huge environmental yeah. thing. So if, if you look at me, for example, I have huge genetics of addiction in my family on both my mother's and father's side, mm -hmm. and that exposed me to childhood trauma, which I was, right. as well as whatever happens across our lifetime. Mm -hmm. It makes somebody like me highly vulnerable and not a good candidate to snort my first line of cocaine. Right. That's yeah. the fact of the matter. Not a good candidate for any kind of intoxicating substance or addictive behavior. It also makes me more vulnerable to that because one of the things that happens, mm -hmm. if you're exposed to a traumatic environment, the research suggests that you have a system that runs higher in terms of cortisol release yeah. Yeah. in the brain. And so you've got somebody who's, as one client put it, barbecuing in their own adrenaline, right. and they're gonna to want to find some release. And addictive behaviors, like we said, mm -hmm. provide a short-term antidote to, to that stress. Wow. Okay, I promise we're going to stop here. <laughs> Can we stop, gentlemen? Thank you, guys. Thank you, Odie. Thank, thank you, you for your participation. Yeah. Austin, thank you for your uh, engagement and passing along um, uh, the good comments and questions that were raised today. I want to invite more of these, not less of them. And if we have to break down a single presentation, frame by frame, we shall do it, okay? Come back next week and we'll pick up part two. And actually what I want to do next week is move into, I'll move into a quick review of where we went today. Quick review of where <laughs> we went today. And then we'll engage next week with some exercises that tie into this that you can personally apply this. You're welcome to review this material this week as well. And I'll, I'll take it to the next step next week. And we'll wrap up this uh, presentation next week. It's possible that next week will maybe a shorter presentation. I don't know. And added together, they equal two full <laughs> presentations. I know this is a fault of Halloween. 
This is Halloween's fault. (laughs) So bananas and tacos to everybody. Okay. (laughs) We uh, wish you well. Thank you for joining us. If you have any final comments or questions, you can write to me through uh, my website, drbobweathers.com. You can reach out to, uh, uh, I keep, you can reach out to Austin or Odie through their Facebook group. And um, particularly the question that came earlier, I'd like to respond to that, and I'll do that this week, okay? Thank you for joining us. Appreciate your participation. Come back and join us next week. Have a good week, and happy holidays. Thank you.